session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Trolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, our studio number 3104410555. Because of the 4th of July holiday, I didn't do a show on Monday. So I'm going to do the book of the week today. Um, and that book is Characters on the Couch by Dean A. Haycock. Characters on the Couch, Exploring Psychology Through Literature and Film. And a few years ago, I actually uh, got to have uh, Dean Haycock on the show. He wrote a book called Tyrannical Minds, which was a book of the week back in 2019. And then he kindly joined me on the show to talk about that book. This is another book that he's written where he... Uh, essentially goes through the DSM, the Diagnostical and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, uh, and um, describes or um, explores different characters in movies, in plays, in novels, in short stories that express different psychological disorders. So it's actually interesting um, and it's in some ways textbook-like because it goes through different symptoms, but then also these very short vignettes where he describes the uh, character and the story and how you could try to diagnose this individual. And, and as he put in the introduction, of course, a uh, big spoiler alert because in order to describe these different characters, he often has to talk about the events of the um, book or or movie uh, and even somebody's the ending so he does give that spoiler alert at the beginning because there's no way to describe these characters without describing what happened to them and what they did um also another uh, thing he mentions in the introduction which i think is important is um, there's something called the goldwater rule and he actually talks about it in that book tyrannical minds where um because of what happened during the presidential uh, campaign back in i don't know if it was I think it was in the 60s, uh, with Barry Goldwater, um, some psychiatrists and psychologists gave some very kind of anecdotal diagnoses based on how they saw him, but they were pretty extreme and negative. And um, it was printed in a, a, a magazine, and it became very controversial because these individuals, these professionals who had never met or evaluated this individual gave some very damning uh, conclusions about who he was and his personality and, and how he was unfit to serve, for as many of them put it. So the American Psychiatric Association, uh, in response to that, released a, a statement, and it's become known as the, the Goldwater Rule, uh, that states that uh, psychiatrists, and really this extends any mental health professional, cannot diagnose an individual unless they have personally evaluated them. And so um, you can't give a diagnosis uh, officially for someone that you've not seen yourself 
and evaluated, which is also interesting because if you've seen someone um, personally, then almost always because of confidentiality, you wouldn't be able to reveal that anyway. And I think in some ways, when it comes to politics and different issues, this is handcuffed mental health professionals, I think we do have to be careful not to go too far in making certain diagnoses or um, being very uh, confident in what we say about someone we've never evaluated. But I also don't think it, it should mean that mental health professionals should not be able to share opinions and uh, develop certain profiles for individuals that might help us understand them better. So I don't think that we shouldn't be able to, we have to say nothing. Um, but, uh, you know, I do think we have to be careful in that one that incident that went very badly with Barry Goldwater made, I think, people more conservative. Nonetheless, um, as he explains in this book, these are fictional characters, so that same Goldwater rule doesn't apply. You can diagnose or give your psychological analysis on a character in a book or a movie. We're talking about fictional characters, and so he does that um, throughout the book. And as he also mentions, what I think is interesting and important when we look at books and movies, you know, we sometimes think, well, that's fiction. And so if it's fiction, we we don't learn as much as real life. But um, as he very well puts it, in a book or a movie, we sometimes are actually given um, access to an individual's inner thoughts and all their behaviors that they might even do behind closed doors when people are not around, which you don't even get even sometimes as a a psychologist you might not get them as a therapist I might not get as much details as can be expressed in a book where um, they might go into the inner thoughts of the the person for long periods of time so I think that is interesting and uh, it reminds me of a very nice quote by um, the author Albert Camus which is fiction is the lie through which we tell the truth fiction is the lie through which we tell the truth um, which I think is is so brilliantly stating this point that through fiction although yes it's a lie or it's fake because they're in a sense made up stories but they actually can tell the truth about the human experience and aspects of that experience that um, would be harder to tell otherwise and they could do it quite powerfully as well uh, and so throughout the book, he shares different characters with different types of issues ranging from schizophrenia to anxiety disorders to personality disorders to amnesia, for example, anterograde amnesia in the movie Memento. Um, and, you know, he gives the symptoms. And so that way, as I said, it does read a sort of textbook like in a way. But for me, it was a nice review or a nice exploration of these different characters and seeing their symptoms expressed in a certain way um, which is another thing you know you can read the symptoms like you know here are the symptoms of depression but actually seeing what they look like in an individual uh, can be much more meaningful than just reading the symptoms because they can be a lot harder to recognize now when you interact with the person so in a movie or a book it's more like what you're gonna have to deal with as a professional where you see the individual in real life not just as a list of symptoms um, that which which that also I think for me was interesting and not only does he talk mostly about psychological disorders that's the majority of the book he goes through characters that display different um, disorders but he also shares about positive psychology and, and individuals who express positive qualities and he bases this on uh, 
the the positive psychology school of thought and Martin Seligman and Christopher Peterson's work and so individuals who display um, good qualities things like wisdom and knowledge there's like the sixth character um, traits or profiles uh, wisdom and knowledge courage humanity justice temperance uh, and transcendence and so for example with courage you, you can also have resilience and so Harry Potter he describes as someone who displayed great resilience because he was um, his parents died when he was a baby and he was raised by his abusive aunt and uncle but he still overcame that and, and achieved great things or uh, the old man in the sea Santiago he shares him and how he expresses some uh, very positive traits as well so I thought that was that was a nice touch to include that not just to focus on the disorders but to include the positives also uh, he does share also some um, of his commentary on how at times the mental illnesses are misrepresented in in movies and that happens a lot unfortunately um, some from ignorance or people probably not doing enough research to really understand what the disorder looks like or just talking about it or expressing the disorder as it's sometimes uh, the misconceptions or myths about it uh, sometimes for dramatic effect so if we make an individual violent or have some huge conflicts that's more interesting than what maybe is the typical experience so for example in um, Taxi Driver Robert De Niro in that movie he diagnoses him Dean Haycock with schizotypal personality disorder um, but in that movie uh, spoiler alert Robert De Niro his character becomes very violent um, but in reality there's nothing to lead us to believe that someone with schizotypal personality disorder is likely to be violent and in general individuals with severe mental disorders are more likely to be the victims of a crime or violence than to perpetrate it but our tendency is to think that people who have mental illnesses you know there's always this sense uh, you know in the news and media of that unstable person who's about to get very violent or when we see mass shootings it's always associated with well mental illness it's people who have mental illnesses that do these things and there are instances where that happens but there's a lot of instances where it's not someone who's been diagnosed with some severe mental illness and also the overwhelming majority almost all um of the individuals with severe mental illnesses are not violent and so unfortunately this association has become further solidified through media and uh, movies and oftentimes in books that shows that these are unstable people that are going to get violent and hurt you and so I think that contributes to the stigmatization the dehumanization and also the sense that we're almost afraid to help someone at times with mental illness because we think they're going to hurt us and I think that's unfortunate so I like that he also touched on that that he would uh, at times diagnose them or in a, a movie or a book they were said to have a disorder and he would say how there are elements of it here but also this does not necessarily uh, fit what we tend to see for example or what we might see as the course of what the individual goes through another uh, kind of device used in books and movies is this you know moment of insight that changes everything which can happen um, but very often without 
treatment and going through things for a long period of time, people don't overcome a mental illness. So uh, in Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, the individual suffers from this fear of heights, and then all of a sudden at the end of the movie, again, spoiler alert, he's able to climb this bell tower um, without experiencing the the vertigo or the fear of heights. And usually a a phobia is not going to be overcome in that type of way. Um, What's also interesting is he includes some profiles of the different uh, authors or filmmakers, usually it's the authors, um, and how we can see that their life, first of all, just seeing what their lives were like, but seeing at times the autobiographical aspects of what they have written. So, for example, um, Sylvia Plath in her novel The Bell Jar has a character, Esther Greenwood, who appears to be suffering from major depressive disorder. And we know that Um, Sylvia Plath herself sadly suffered from a pretty severe depression if not more than that and also uh, took her own life um, when uh, in in, I think it was 1963 so uh, we see that oftentimes of course not surprisingly there's a lot of autobiographical aspects to great works of art um, literature movies uh, and so he includes these these um, kind of profiles on different authors throughout the book, Ernest Hemingway, Sylvia Plath, uh, and then also movie makers like Alfred Hitchcock, which gives you some insight into what they uh, might be experiencing or what maybe contribute to what they created based on what they experienced in their own life, which I think is always important to know. Um, You know, there were some interesting aspects in the book about eating disorders, for example. Uh, I don't know this book, Winter Girls by Laurie Halls Anderson, but this character, Leah Overbrook, and what I thought was interesting is she has um, anorexia, and but it shares about what she goes through, and at times her dialogue has parts that are actually crossed out in the book because it's what she's thinking, but she doesn't say. So, for example, someone offers her a muffin, and uh, it says, because I can't let myself want them, but that part's crossed out, and all she says is because I don't need a muffin. Uh, or another part is someone says that doesn't seem like a lot that you're eating. She says, I could eat the entire box. Uh, but then she out loud only says, I probably won't even fill the bowl. So again, we can see that with uh, literature or in movies, we can at times get even a deeper insight into someone's experience than we normally do. And in that way, we can share what it's like to be that person in a deeper way, which I thought was quite fascinating. He also includes, there's a lot of classics, some I hadn't heard of, as I mentioned that one, lots of books and movies I haven't seen or haven't read, uh, but things like Romeo and Juliet. And so I know it's interesting because we tend to think of that as this beautiful love story, or that's how we think of two lovers. It's like they're Romeo and Juliet, but he talks about how it's an an obsessional love. It's not something uh, healthy which makes sense you know we we tend to again i think because it's movies and they're trying to elicit or plays or books and they want to elicit some feeling in us very often it's a very dramatic overly dramatic and unhealthy expression of that so um you know in that in the play romeo is in love with some other girl who is not interested in him and quickly within i think i don't know if it's that day or very quickly now is obsessed with juliet and now she's the the girl that he can't be without and and wants so much. So we can see that it's not just this healthy love that he has that we should strive towards, but really an obsessional love. And at first she is not 
uh, as into it and is a little bit more hesitant, but then slowly she falls into the obsession of love with him as well. So I thought that was interesting kind of to put that spin, uh, probably a realistic one. And often when we hear song lyrics or um, see love stories in movies and books that we think are so romantic, if we actually take a closer look, uh, we'll see that it's quite unhealthy. And if we strive for that in our own lives, we, we actually uh, will be striving for something very unhealthy, often unrealistic, and really something we shouldn't even want. So I thought that was an interesting take on it, which makes a lot of sense. So it's, it's, a, it's a different type of book, like I said, because it's more textbook-like. There's, I think, 101 different of these different profiles that go through these um, different characters in the book. It also includes uh, Stanley Milgram, who did the the famous experiments on obedience and also uh, Philip Zimbardo who did the Stanford prison experiment um, and and movies that were made about them as well and talks about how those studies actually were not uh, necessarily as up to par as we might think with the current standard of how we would run experiments first of all we couldn't even do them because it was too distressful for the individuals who had to participate but that there was also um, some of the conclusions might not be as clear as, as one might think. So he included those as well. I think the only thing I w was hoping that would be in the book, and I get, get it that it was more about psychological disorders, but psychologists and therapists as they are presented in uh, films and, and books, because maybe that's because I am one myself, but oftentimes they're represented poorly or in unhealthy ways, again, to make things dramatic. Very often they're having relationships with their clients or doing unethical things to make things more dramatic. I've seen some more recent ones that seem to have a healthier and more realistic expression of what a therapist is, but um, I'm sure there's books on that topic too, so maybe I'll have to look for those. But this book itself, Characters on the Couch by Dean Haycock, does a great job of exploring various mental health issues that have been expressed through film and literature. Quite interesting. All right, let's go to our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the first segment, I was discussing the book Characters on the Couch by Dean A. Haycock, exploring psychology through literature and film. And as I discussed, it explores a lot of different mental disorders, almost from all the categories that are on in the Diagnostical and Statistical Manual. I'm having a hard time with that word today. Um, that basically outlines all of the different mental disorders and explains how different characters through books and movies express those characteristics of these disorders and I think it can be very good to, to first of all look at these things and also good when these things uh, these different mental disorders and issues are presented in books and movies as long as it's presented in um, a few important ways one is accuracy and as I mentioned at times you shared that certain uh, books and movies have very inaccurately expressed certain mental disorders. Um, so the accuracy is very important. We want to make sure we're, we're sharing what it's actually like because then it's actually going to miseducate people. So um, rather than teaching them what the mental illness is like and what people go through, it can contribute to myths and misconceptions, uh, which is never good. So the accuracy to me is very important. And the other very important element is that it humanizes them uh, or shows them to be more human rather than contributes to their dehumanization. 
So by that, I mean, at times we can present people as, oh, they're just crazy and weird and, and out there um, and actually makes us dehumanize and feel that they're so different from us. And I think that's very unfortunate. But there's another way to present that this is part of the human experience and individuals that are dealing with different mental disorders are not different from you or me or they can be you or me we're not so different from them so to me that's very important to to look at that because uh, oftentimes when i see people talk about individuals with mental illnesses you can see the misconceptions that the media whether it's through news or or books movies have contributed to people's thinking about things even you know the ways we look at um, what different disorders are i remember in the film um, i think it's called me myself and irene with jim carrey and he is someone who's dealing with dissociative identity disorder which used to be called multiple personality disorder um so he has these different e you know personalities or e alter egos that come out at different times and one of the individuals says yeah he's a schizo and um so very often people think that people with schizophrenia have multiple personalities and so even the name schizophrenia meaning split brain can contribute to that but it's more that it's split in, in its um, uh, being in reality and not reality in a sense not that it's multiple personalities but we can see that these types of misconceptions can be perpetuated by by media and sometimes i wonder it's you know it doesn't take even if you google search these types of things you, you would see what really we're dealing with or you would hope you consult a mental health professional in making a, a book or movie that de deals with mental illness but nonetheless those things often aren't done um so that to me is very important and then also taking a a step back you know mental disorders when we look at the diagnostic and statistical, I, I just wanted to see if I could say it right once, manual, and it gives us the different um, disorders. At times it says, let's say for depression, you have to have five of these nine symptoms for two weeks, or for this disorder, you have to at least meet these three for six months. Uh, and, and those are important, We, but they are often, of course, very um, arbitrary to a degree. You know, someone might meet four of the characteristics for depression, but they're so severe that I think anyone would still consider them as, uh, you know, suffering from depression, but they might technically not meet the diagnosis. So there's that aspect. There's always going to be um, issues. In general, I think diagnosis is important, but sometimes overly given importance in some ways because there are a lot of arbitrary lines being drawn. Even what's considered uh, mental illness can is of course very heavily influenced by society and culture e even for me it's been interesting thinking about um, i still have my mask here and you know in california as wearing a mask is becoming more relaxed um, but if someone wore a mask three years ago everywhere you would think they were you know oh are they ocd are they obsessed are they you know germaphobe whatever you would call them and then now for a long time if you didn't wear a mask a lot of people would get mad at you what are you thinking or using hand sanitizer 10 times a day if you did that before people would think something is wrong with you and want to diagnose you with um, some illness but for a long time many of us were doing that and washing our hands what would be considered obsessively before so we can see the different contexts uh, and the different cultural changes can have a huge impact on what we consider healthy and what we consider normal and and dean Hay haycock in the book even talks about how until the 70s 
homosexuality was considered a mental disorder and was in the previous DSMs, and that's really heartbreaking and horrible, um, but something we have to recognize as the mental health field that we can very much still, uh, you know, be stigmatizing people that are just going through something natural and normal or human, but it's considered wrong by, by society. So that's something we have to be very careful about. Um, but so going back to this, also this idea that you might not be diagnosed with a full-on mental disorder, and so there's different statistics about what percentage of the population would diagno be diagnosed with something, all of us have some mental health issues or problems. That is, you know, so you might not have schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, or even in your life suffer a major depressive, um, you know, illness, but it doesn't mean you don't have any issues or problems. And that's something very important to recognize. Similar to your health, you know, you might be overall healthy and hopefully you don't have a, a severe medical concern or issue, but we all have some problems or things we're dealing with. No one has perfect physical health. And similarly, no one has perfect mental health. But I think oftentimes people only think if they have some severe illness um, that would be diagnosed, they have a mental health problem, or they think only crazy people have issues and they don't. And sadly, what ends up happening is uh, people who don't think they have mental health problems are actually a mental health problem for a lot of other people. So if you don't realize your own issues and what you have going on, you're going to hurt other people with your issues and the way that you treat them. And people sometimes are more, um, you know, looking at themselves negatively, which of course is not good, but at least the benefit at times is people who look to themselves as possibly having the problem or being the problem are more likely to be aware of the ways they're hurting other people. Whereas some people who don't want to accept any issues or having any problems and are very defensive, um, even itself could be parts of personality issues like narcissism, but doesn't have to be. And again, what I even say that it doesn't mean they're necessarily going to be diagnosed or can be diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. But that trait of being defensive and not wanting to see that you have a problem or have an issue, uh, it doesn't mean that the problem or the issue isn't there. It just means you're going to be unaware of it. And actually, it'll probably hurt you, but it also is going to hurt the people around you. So I do ask, you know, for anyone, when you hear me talk about, let's say, serious mental illnesses or different things, first of all, they're more, much more common than you think. When you look at the, the percentage of people that deal with all the different issues from anxiety disorders to depressions to different uh, mental health illnesses that can be, let's say, diagnosed, that's a lot of people. But also, even if you aren't in that category, if you don't think you have any mental health issues in a way that is your mental health issue or it's another one to add to the list if you're completely unaware of that because you're lacking the insight into yourself and seeing who you are and when i deal with families in therapy you, you can see it or just even in individual therapy but in family therapy you see it play out so much more that for example the parents don't want to see what they might be doing wrong and so if their kid is 
going through something, they just think the kid has a problem or is, is bad. Uh, even it's interesting for me when parents start therapy with saying, oh, you don't know how bad my kid is or you don't know how much of a problem we're having with her or him or what's wrong with this person. Um, not realizing that, of course, they've played a part in creating whatever is going on. It's not just their kid is a problem. And so they might not realize that they're in a way revealing um, themselves as doing something wrong when they think they're just saying, let's talk about how bad my kid is. So I would ask anyone listening to think if you can't think about yourself and what are some of your own mental health issues, it's not because you don't have them. It's because you don't have the insight into them. And oftentimes this is why therapy can be helpful because we are always going to be biased. We're, we're all biased all the time. But when it comes to looking at ourselves, we're going to be almost more blind than just biased because there's some things we won't be able to see about ourselves. We won't even recognize or notice. And sometimes the people closest to us can give us that insight if we are open to it. Uh, it's, it's a complicated thing because telling people what is not so right about them, even if someone isn't overly defensive, most people can get hurt or sensitive by it. But I actually would hope that we can be more open. And if the intention is, I want to share this with you because I care about you, I want you to be better or feel better, and I want our relationship to be better. That's different than I want to judge you or make you feel bad or put you down. So if you're ever bringing it up, you have to look at your own intention. But also in hearing it, if we first accept that I know I have some issues, and even you're aware of some, but you're not going to be aware of others, it really is actually a good thing when someone tells you, hey, you know, I've noticed sometimes you do this or you're, you've been kind of really angry and like you've been get, being very short and I think that's been unfair or I've noticed that you've been you know doing this behavior more and I'm a little worried about you I would actually hope we can be more comfortable with that now I think some of it is our overall defensiveness but I also think some of it is that because mental health issues are so stigmatized that to tell someone they might have some type of issue, you know, even when we say that, oh, he's got issues or she's got issues, um, when it's said in, you know, that way and we're judging in that way, well, then it could feel really bad if someone tells us you have issues. And the truth is we all have issues. We just need to learn about them and to deal with them. And you can't work on something until you know what it is. You can't fix a problem until you first are open to seeing if there's a problem, understanding the problem and facing that problem head on and full on. So people who don't think they have any mental health problems are a mental health problem for a lot of other people because we all have them. We just might not be aware of what they are and how it's making us impact and affect others. All right, let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to a caller now. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks for calling. Good, good. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I just had a, I guess, um, specific issue. I don't know if it's related to OCD or a mental tick or cognitive tick, but essentially I have this habit that I developed where it's kind of similar to coin flipping and 
if it's um, I find it if I'm in a stressful situation and that's how it started actually um, people will come up to me ask for decisions or come up to me for with like mundane decisions mm-hmm. so just my way of kind of getting back to them and giving them a response I started this habit of looking at my watch and to see if the seconds dial is on the right hand side I'll say this if it's on the left hand side I'll say this other thing mm-hmm. and um, same thing if it's like a digital thing I look at the clock if it's an odd number ending I'll say this if it's an even number I'll say this other thing right so in my head it becomes kind of like a uh, a blocker and then sometimes I keep going over it and it's kind of transition into doing like simple daily things like if I like should I wear white or black or do this or do that mm-hmm. so I find that I do it more frequently when I'm you know it's a stressful situation but sometimes uh, it's, it's not impacting my life drastically but it's just something that I wonder where does it come from and what can I do to kind of uh, remediated. Sure. Um, yeah, you know, it's good that it's not negatively impacting your life much now. It can, um, you know, things like this can develop not to alarm you, but just I think it's good that you're trying to look at it and address it. So a few things come to mind when you're trying to understand the the why. Um, one part, it seems, you know, you're saying what's making decisions, you're not trusting yourself to to make a decision. Um, and coupled with that, my guess is that you're very hard on yourself or you'd be very punishing because I think another element of what you're doing is you're trying to almost take it out of your own hands. And so in a way, you're also not responsible for the decision. Well, it was it was fate. It was the time. It was, you know, whatever it was, you're in a way absolving yourself from the responsibility of um, whether or not, you know, let's say things go well or not. So I, I think it serves a few things. But clearly, of course, you're doubting yourself in making the right choice yourself. You, you're take you're taking it out of your own hands in a way. So in that way. Um, you, you also can't blame yourself. So those are a few thoughts that first come in. You mentioned OCD. It definitely has a flavor of that. And as I was talking about in the previous segment, you know, whether or not something can be diagnosed as something, there's still traits and characteristics that we can, can notice and see. Um, but what do you think of those, uh, those few things I brought up so far? I think that's a very valid point um, in terms of absolving yourself of the mm-hmm. <laughs> consequences or the decisions. And then also, um, I don't know, I, I've kind of looked into through past readings or movies or what, whatever you come to uh, come across in terms of a belief system um, that somehow tying this to the element of time, somehow that makes it the right decision that, um, you know, I, I kind of think of it as the observation effect that uh, if I observe something and have an impact on it then somehow um, I've influenced it but if I let time you know be the element that has an influence on the decision then I've kind of removed that observer effect from it so it's kind of like a quantum physics is that a quantum physics type of a thing yeah 
<laughs> yeah, actually, the book, I talked about it, I don't know if you listened a couple weeks ago, uh, Helgoland by Carlo Rovelli, I think is his name. And he talks about how he yeah, he sees the relational explanation as the, the one he most thinks fits what we observe in quantum theory. Um, what, I, what I sense from what you're saying, though, is... Uh, Again, it's a way of abstracting it and it, we can call it intellectualizing it. So it's like, you know, um, and again, these things, why, you know, I think logically, why would 737 versus 738 mean that one decision is better than the other? Or, you know, I mean, your watch could be fast or slow. It's not something official um, that's that's going on. Uh, it does seem like to me there's a way of abstracting it and intellectualizing and looking for some, even like the way you said, like, you know, Look, looking for some truth with a capital T that, you know, somebody's the universe somehow through this, the time um, is going to give you the right answer rather than I have to choose something. And, and I think the part that, uh, you know, I was, I was talking about beating yourself up or being hard. I think when you absolve yourself, part of why I think you're doing that is because the consequences for you feel so big. Now, of course, sometimes we make big decisions and we might feel like there's big consequences, but what you seem to be describing are fairly trivial things, even like what you, what color you wear or getting back to someone. So that would tell me that you're probably building things up too much that if you're wrong, it's too big a price to pay or it feels like too much. So you'd rather make it that, well, I didn't make the choice. The universe did. You know, I looked at the time and, you know, the, the second hand was on the left side so I had to choose this but I think it's because you will punish yourself too much if it turns out to be wrong or not good mm -hmm. and and so what are some techniques or some, <laughs> I guess things I can do or work on to yeah. uh, get rid of this habit or at least well, um, yeah, one of the things you're going to have to do, I mean, this definitely has uh, the obsessive, the OCD quality to it or an anxiety or even phobia type quality. And the only way we get over something that's anxiety related is to face it, meaning that you're going to have to try to cut this back or stop doing these habits of, um, you know, leaving the decision to the time on the watch or whatever it might be. So that's one thing that's more from a behavioral or a technique. But also, I think it's worth exploring for yourself what makes this inner critic. And again, I, I, I haven't heard it from you if you would agree with that. But I get the sense this inner critic is so harsh that if you get things wrong, it's really, really bad. And so you don't want to f almost face that, you know, it, it's not, you can't punish me because I didn't do it, but it is within yourself, which is the, the kind of interesting, but also distressing part of it. So is that, do you, can you relate to that? Or am I off on that, that the inner critic is tough within you? I think so. I mean, I've done, um, what's the saying? Does not suffers fool, does not suffer fools errant easily. There's a saying that I can relate to that, in a way, you don't look like coming off as a fool and to the public and then also internalize it as well, right? So mm -hmm. I guess that when that gets a bit extreme, some people are comfortable, <laughs> you know, being wrong and it's not a big deal. But I guess um, personality-wise, when that gets a bit excessive, then I, I guess I internalize it and... Um, so, yeah. yeah, it's the inner critic being kinder to yourself. Yeah, I mean, and even the way you said it, you know, we're, we're all wrong. Um, you know, you said some people are okay. It's not that anyone likes 
being wrong. Now, sometimes people say, oh, I want to learn. So there's some of that, but we all like to be right and get things right. Um, it's just how much we can tolerate being wrong and also accept that it's part of being human, that you're not always going to be right. Um, so even in the way you said it, I almost felt this like looking down on those. I mean, even though you might think it's healthier in a way, some people are okay being wrong. Well, I'm not okay being wrong. Um, <laughs> but it's not a strength. It's actually going to hold you back as you're seeing it's, it. You know, it's kind of like, let's say you're a, a basketball player and you don't want to take a shot because you never want to miss, but you never take shots because you're, you know, you don't want to miss any shots because that looks so bad. And you might think, well, others are okay missing shots, but I'm not. So it's actually going to hold you back from doing better and doing more because uh, that that fear of making a mistake can become so big. Mm hmm. And it's true, certainly. And it's not like I'm, uh, I get, uh, I, I mean, we all, I make mistakes, I make mistakes all the time, and I admit that, that up front. Good. So, yeah, I don't want to be in a position where, you know, uh, life passes you by and you're still waiting to take a shot. Mm -hmm. um, so, I've tried not doing this, like not wearing a watch at all or not uh, looking at the time, but it just, it's just, it becomes so habitual like what, yeah. is there some kind of way that other than well try not to try yeah um uh, that somehow i guess that would help that i can yeah well i, I think i, I want to explore a little more what you're feeling and you know you're right look habits are hard to break but you had to form this habit so we know you can break it too because it, you know, you didn't do it before and now you do. And once we get used to something, um, not doing it, especially if it's something that's kind of has this anxiety feel to it, it could feel really wrong and it's going to feel very wrong for you to not do it. But I want to go a little bit more into, so when someone asks you, if you can explore a little bit deeper, what do you feel in that moment? Is it, I don't know what's the right thing, uh, you know, and then it's turning to this kind of like, the universe to tell you in this way by the time like can you tell me a bit more what you go through internally in that process hmm. so sometimes it, it, it's it kind of falls into two categories either it's a very drastic decision like um not, not uh, like I, i'm a pilot as well and sometimes you know you certainly that's the reason that's why i was afraid that i don't want this to kind of um, play into my professional life, mm -hmm. right? That when you have to make a snap decision, uh, I found myself when it was very stressful that uh, I would I would do the same thing again, right? Uh, and uh, so it's either that category when it's really really I guess stressful to mm -hmm. make a decision mm -hmm. like that, or it's really mundane that I don't even want to I guess put the effort or the faculties to you know really <laughs> make a decision on that point so i just you know it's kind of like mundane um so mundane like it's not even worth your time that's that's actually of, that's right. funny i didn't even realize the pun there worth your time and you, you look to the the watch the, to see the time <laughs> but yeah it's i guess it's not worth your, your time in that sense uh which is interesting so it's almost not worth i mean and it doesn't take that much effort just to say i don't know white or black or pick something and actually some people you know will say when it comes to dressing um sometimes you know you'll you'll see things where like oh this person who's successful does this so you should do it when maybe it has nothing to do with their success but that they sometimes just pick a few simple things and they wear that so they don't think about that 
that anymore. So it's kind of not something they think about every day. Um, but the, so going back to your work, though, of course, yeah, that can be high stakes. I don't know in what context this has come up. Has it gotten into your work where you have to make a judgment and you, um, you know, have turned to these devices? It has, but it hasn't had any negative impact. So that's the funny thing that even if I do it once, it doesn't mean that it will be there and then, right? Like I'll look at the clock and I'll say, for example, this way, but I'll maybe, and this is the part that bothers me that uh, I'll sit on it and I'll, I'll say, well, I'll look at it again in five minutes. And if it confirms like two out of three, then it'll be that way mm-hmm. so it's just mentally exhausting you know that yeah. it just becomes like an infinite loop sometimes and I wonder why do I do, do do this to myself if I'm just gonna if I'm not gonna take it at face value the very first time then why do I keep doing it it's like someone you know you're poking at your own wound or scab and if you just stop <laughs> yeah <laughs> heal but um Sometimes I find it that, yeah, if it doesn't make sense, and maybe that's my own process of thinking it through uh, of what I want to do, but... Mm-hmm. Um, well, it does seem like, you know, it is interesting because you almost are saying you do this to make it easier, but you're saying it is more exhausting, actually, because it's not... It's I think it's also, you know, the way that you're describing, I think you know that it's not, it's not the right way, just like the time is not going to tell you what's the right judgment so you do doubt it it's not this um, foolproof system that you know is right you in the moment I think because you're anxious you want to take it out of your hands but then you're turning it over to something that you also don't fully believe in you might be able to uh, justify it at some moments if it has some like you know abstract quantum um, you know value to it but I think you know it's not you know it doesn't make sense to turn left or right based on if it's 733 or 734 you know um that probably is not going to be the reason and again even your clock could be a minute forward or back like so it, it shouldn't make sense now yeah maybe if you believe in some the whole universe is together and knows like you know where your clock is and will tell you which one to do but even it seems like you arbitrarily pick you know odd and even or left and right it's not i don't know you know it, it could be explained away but it, it takes a lot of mental gymnastics and i think that's what's so exhausting for you and it does seem like you're doubting yourself you know if you ask me when it comes to making a piloting decision i i 100 would rather you make the decision than if it's a you know odd or even second or minute you know because i trust you to know what to do but i think that's where i feel like the trust for yourself is not quite there mm. yep so and and it, it it sometimes it comes in waves, you know. Yeah. It's like it's not like I I do this all the time. It's I find that um, like months go by and I don't do it, and then all of a sudden I go back to the habit of I guess it's like smoking mm-hmm. or you know falling back into it. So, yeah, and like you said, it you know you mentioned earlier when you're stressed, and as you said, smoking. Yes, yeah, sometimes people when they're more stressed, they might turn to that coping, but it's giving you some kind of comfort if you're going to it when you're feeling stressed or making the decisions feels overwhelming, so you want to relieve yourself of that. Um, and so, you know, as I mentioned about the believing more in yourself, it also, you know, it's interesting when you look at the whole as a conceptual type of a thing, if you have that perfectionistic type of a sense, 
what it means is you tell yourself that because I make mistakes, I'm not that good or I'm not that great. But that's not true. But then because you have this mindset that because I make mistakes, I'm not that good, I'm not that great, you're actually undermining how good you actually are. Because you're thinking, well, you know, if I sometimes may, I know I make mistakes, sometimes or I know I, I, you know, I don't always know, so I can't be that good. Just like, you know, since we're using a basketball analogy, the, you know, look at someone like Steph Curry, who's one of the best, maybe best shooters ever. He's still missing most of the three-point shots he's taking, but he's the best ever, or maybe one of the best ever. So, I, I think you're undermining your own quality, your own uh, capabilities, because of the perfectionism, because those mistakes loom too large to think that you, you can know what's right because you've seen yourself be wrong. Is this something to do with like a first child type of thing? Over <laughs> there, there could be, uh, you know, I'm assuming that you are based on you saying that. Um, you know, if you want, I, I'd like to explore a little bit deeper, you know, after the break, we're at a commercial break. If you can, you know, think about, and we'll talk more about childhood, what you experienced. You know, I've made a few assumptions, so I want you to kind of think about them too, about perfectionism and different things. So let's explore those a bit deeper after the break, okay? Sure. All right. We'll be right back. Before the break, we're with the caller. Let's go back to him now. Caller, are you still there? Uh, yes. All right. Hi. So um, you were sharing before the break about um, what you've been, you know, something that's been coming up. A, you called it maybe a mental tick or you're not sure have it's like related to OCD, but that where you're at times when it comes to making decisions will turn to a, a clock or a watch to kind of make the decision for you in a sense. And as I was saying before the break, I wanted to go a little bit into, you know, childhood. You mentioned yourself, you think, what if it's related to being the first child? So tell me a bit about your childhood, what you think might be related to what you're going through now. I mentioned some things like uh, perfectionism, but I wanted to hear from you a bit more about your childhood. Mm, so, yeah, first child, and I guess it's a standard Persian family thing, either you're a doctor or a lawyer or engineer type of <laughs> childhood, so yeah, overbearing parents a bit, mm -hmm. um, very loving, but at the same time kind of hard, uh, making sure all your grades are good, you're going on a good path, um, but to the same extent, uh, I don't know where you draw the line that if what you're doing is too much on the child or not. Mm -hmm. um, I have a young sister as well, and um, two years younger. And it almost seems like, I mean, she has some, some of these notions that uh, you got the, I guess, the, the better end of the deal or you know, they, you got more attention, whereas, you know, and we're just two, two children, um, mm -hmm. two kids in the family, but uh, I, I almost feel like uh, maybe my parents overemphasized on me a bit, and mm -hmm. then she, was, she came in second, and then, uh, so... Like I was always kind of overachieving, <laughs> you know, going uh -huh. for 
uh, this degree or that degree or, you know, different types of things. So um, I was kind of excelling at school while she had, like, difficulties, at least at the beginning. But once in university and all that, I think, you know, it kind of uh, worked out. And she's fine as well. Uh, it's just at the younger ages, um, I feel like it was very overbearing on me but i could handle it mm -hmm. i guess and then on her it wasn't like it was too much on her um to the extent that um like i remember and this is what's in my mind and what bothers me that even at a very young age like uh uh when uh you know your parents are like trying to do um spelling and things like that with you uh i would be okay but when it was her turn uh like um like if she made mistakes or she made um she did this thing where she actually tried to cheat and like copy the correct spelling off of the back of her notebook uh like uh then she would get punished really badly uh for that and to the extent where she would cry she would start crying and uh she was like very mentally like distraught for like an eight eight nine year old kid hmm. to get to that level where she came back i think it was just uh you know childhood and not knowing exactly uh what what it means maybe she picked it up from somewhere or the other but to the extent that she came back and she's crying and saying i want to commit suicide when, and, when she was eight or nine years old yes huh. um over spelling mistakes well i mean but well but you know but it's interesting even that you're saying it's over spelling mistakes but it's over probably your parents treatment of her spelling mistakes exactly yeah. yes that and uh, the reaction was, I don't know if it's a good or bad, but you know, maybe it's kind of like calling someone's bluff and, uh, and that, that the response was like, okay, go ahead. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, I'm never, I'm not a fan of that response. I mean, it, I'm sure your parents were trying to do what they thought was best. Um, I get it, the calling the bluff, but I, I always think it's better to go the other way. First off, if someone is serious, you know, if they say they're suicidal and they're serious, obviously you could be saving their life. But even if they aren't, you know, it's another way of calling their bluff by saying, okay, that we're taking it fully seriously. And then if they're using it as a ploy, it's harder to do that. Let's say if you take them to the hospital or, you know, you call the police, if they're, you know, saying that, then they know they can't just say that to get their way in some way. But anyway, that's just a side point because I do want to make that point for parents listening that if you're kids say that um oftentimes one of the things that's happening is denial you know i work with families they say oh yeah one time he said this or she said that but no i know he's okay or she's okay and and it's possible a lot of times people will say it and they aren't seriously thinking of taking their own lives but often it's an avoidance tactic because we're denying because it's too painful to think that is the reality now nonetheless um but even the way you know you're saying your parents testing your spelling almost sounds a bit intrusive or high pressure and maybe you responded to the pressure 
Now, it seems like you responded better, but you might have kind of internalized that pressure even stronger. So at that time, it was good. And, you know, to your sister, you had it easier. And maybe you did in these ways. They were giving you more attention or you matched with them better. You know, you were able to kind of give them what they wanted. But it doesn't necessarily mean that was good. And unfortunately, I think that made you internalize this sense that I'm loved and liked because I don't make mistakes or because I always perform well. So um, likely that contributed to this internalization of this, uh, you know, perfectionism, um, that this is how I get loved. And if you don't do it, look, you saw it firsthand. Maybe you had some experiences yourself, but look what happens to your sister when you get it wrong or you do it wrong. So um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's contributing to some of what you're experiencing or have internalized uh, to this day. I'm not sure if you did you do you feel like there was this sense that the achievement there was a high price on achievement and a high price on not making mistakes or not getting things wrong? Yeah, uh, I do. I even remember like every day before like going to school and this is like elementary school or um, like before going to school, we would do a check, like, you know, do I know this subject or do I know this or do I know that? I just like do a drill in my head and also sometimes I'll actually go and check mm -hmm. <laughs> my parents that am I good to go to school, do I know these things? And then once I felt confident that yes, I know I'm good, I've, whatever, I've covered all the subjects, then I'd feel more at ease that yes, I know it's, uh, parents love it doesn't come tied into achievements and uh, of course they love you regardless of what grade you get you know it's just them trying to um i guess uh, put you on the right path and push you and then mm -hmm. have you excel but um at the same time I, you're right i don't i think some of the overbearing tactics uh even though I wasn't subject to it, but just witnessing it and looking at it, like my sister suffered from it. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, oh, you see what the punishment is. So I go the full end of the spectrum the other way, right? So yeah. Uh, well, you were subjected to it. You know, I know you said maybe you weren't subjected to the punishment, but that was almost the problem that you learned maybe so well how to play the role or like to be quote unquote perfect that you didn't face the punishment but which felt good in the moment but I don't think it was good you know it made you feel like that's the way to avoid pain avoid punishment and so I think we can uh, draw a line of course these things are very complex and have lots of different factors but to what you feel now where when it's time to make a decision it feels like a lot of pressure because you know getting it wrong is really really bad you, you did see how bad it is to be wrong or you know it's not actually how it is but that's how it was presented and it does seem like your parents of course with i'm sure the best intentions they wanted you to as you put it be on the right path for you and your sister but um it seems like there was too much pressure or this overbearing and and you know too much and i'm sure they had their own anxiety if you're dealing with this type of an anxiety so we have the genetic which then also turns into the environment that you were you know experienced and were exposed to and so it seems like you're holding on um to that that sense that you shouldn't make a mistake so it's easier not to make a decision because again you can't be wrong if you don't make a decision and if it's the universe and the universe is right or you can say you know the the darn universe like it was fate even if it was wrong um it externalizes it to this outside force that that again takes you leaves you off the hook um 
and you were able to intellectualize it. And it's interesting, you know, sometimes obviously being intelligent is good, but it also means where you can be good at tricking yourself into certain things even better because you can go to, app, uh, you know, quantum physics and find a reason why checking the time is the right way to make a decision, which I doubt you would think if I said the pilot wants to know to pull up or pull down, should they check the watch or check, you know, a bunch of other things, you'd probably not think that's a good way to to decide what to do, right? I think. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think it's just like a, it's become being wrong has become too, too big of a, a risk. You know, how how does tell me a bit about your personal life outside of work that you're saying? Because, you know, these types of anxieties can also affect how we choose relationships and things of that sort. Uh, that's a whole separate thing. <laughs> I don't know if yeah. I want to get into. Well, we don't have to. Um, we don't have to get into and you obviously don't have to. But, I mean, my first thought was, um, you, know, it, you know, it might make it harder for you to choose a partner. Same kind of a thing. Because it's, you don't know if you're going to be right. You know, and it's so much more yeah. of a, yeah. Like, I'm in my mid-30s, and I'm not married. <laughs> okay. And I have had two or three serious relationships, about two to three years, but um, they always kind of ended. And um, uh, I, in a way, they ended through external factors, like the person moving away or going off to school somewhere else or, uh, you know, job opportunities somewhere else. But in a way, I think if you really want to have that or make it work, then I would have or should have moved away with them as well. Or, you know, if that's what it takes, then that's what it takes. But aside from that, it's been mostly um, kind of, superficial relationships and I've gone through kind of uh, bouts of uh, <laughs> I don't know if you call it drought, drought or floods <laughs> so sometimes it's like there's no relationships at all for maybe six months to a year and then other times it just goes crazy with like multiple ones at the same time um and I find it that, yes, I do find it hard to uh, I don't know if you can if that's the right word, but um you know there's like this whole notion of I compare that you know I really liked what this person had that like this girl was funny, the other girl was uh had this quality or that quality, I know he can't be perfect and just add all of them together and have uh, a perfect relationship, a perfect girl, but I just I just find it hard to commit. And mm -hmm. there's been many times or cases where, you know, the desire of the other person is obviously to, like, get married and, uh, I guess, fully commit, but I just... I just yep. find that I don't I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's the thing, you know, and I'll tell you what, I think if we, you know, this kind of amalgamation amalgamation of all the girls, you know, you're saying this one, the, this quality of this one and this one of that, even if that person was presented to you, you probably would still not be ready based on what you're describing. It's more the anxiety of making that 
commitment. You know, people will say fear of commitment or fear of intimacy, and it means a lot of different things. Um, but I think in your case, that fear of making the wrong choice. And when you're talking about marriage, you know, even people that are very, very confident in the decision, they'll even say it's not 100 percent. Now, it's not something you'll say in wedding vows. They'll, you know, they'll say it like they're so certain. But very often when people are getting married, you know, you can't know 100 percent. And I think for you, that's going to be very challenging because it's not going to feel like a perfect decision because it really can't. So it's always going to seem like, well, there could be something better. There might be someone better. I don't feel so good in this all the time. You know, you're not going to feel good in any relationship all the time. But I'm sure a lot of things are going to push you away from that. So my suggestion to you would be, you know, we've explored a lot of different issues and topics. But if you haven't already uh, to go to therapy and, and really get a little deeper in this, because what, what can end up happening is, you know, this fear of making a decision, it's going to make life pass you by more and more um, out of fear or out of I might make a mistake. And unfortunately, you'll then miss out on a lot of things in life because of that. So um, the the making decisions and the time, you know, we talked about that a bit, and that's very important. But I think bigger picture of where this is all coming from, it, it likely can interfere with the overall experience of your life. Uh, so I don't know. Have you gone to therapy before? Nope. And you're the first kind of person in that capacity I've really spoken well, to. I feel but I'm, very I'm, I'm, lucky. I, I hope whatever, whatever the time was that made you give me a call, I'm very glad that it made that happen. But I really hope you will consider a longer term process because, you know, you're very intelligent. You know, you, you've done a lot of great things, but these types of things will get in the way of making decisions that really makes life more meaningful, like the relationships you form and the things you're going to experience. So I really hope you would consider going to longer term therapy of going a little bit deeper into that. And, you know, you, even making a decision of who to see maybe can turn into another you know decision to make. So I would see, you know, one or two. Anyone you feel at least comfortable enough with? Is there going to be a better therapist out there? I'm sure there is, but you got to find one that's good enough and go forward. And it's going to be a process, not just a, a few times. It's going to be more about building a relationship with them. So I'd commit at least six months to a year um, and really go for it. But is there something like personal, uh, I guess, research or... Um, studies that I can do on my own that I know you just before you were saying that you know not admitting that you have a problem is a problem yeah uh, uh, I know I know that but at the same time I feel like uh, and I know this is a misnomer as well that uh, if you're looking for a teacher or an enlightenment or uh, as long as you continue to seek you're going to be looking and you're going to have that problem. So I get the sense that as if I go to this and I continue going to like therapy, then I'm going to continue having that problem. Whereas if it's something that I can work on myself, uh, then, you know, I, then I can somehow, uh, decide and feel better when, if I do it on my own. So what's, but I get, you know, doing it on your own seems like it has a lot of value for you, whether it's the vulnerability of, of being with someone else or the sense that I should be able to handle it all on my own, um, which could also be part of this kind of perfectionistic being strong enough, good enough. Um, 
So I think acknowledging that you need help, it doesn't mean you're going to have to go to therapy for the rest of your life. And maybe that's the fear is you become dependent on someone else. I should be able to do it all on my own. And even that could affect how you are in relationships in general, that this fear of really giving yourself to someone in the sense of, yes, you're still your own person, but you're, you're giving a lot of yourself to connect with someone and be vulnerable with them and intimate with them in an emotional way. So that's even why I think it's more important for you to go for a long time. I don't, there's no quick fix. There could be some for the behavioral stuff, but it's going to show up in other aspects. And so that's why I'd want you to form a relationship with the therapist where that itself is part of the healing process. Um, and even your resistance to it, I get it. It's, it's probably not easy for you, but that's even more. Your resistance makes me feel even more it would be good for you to go because I think there's this fear of connecting and letting go. And again, I, I really do appreciate that you even called me and are asking for some help, but I really hope you'll go. Um, it doesn't mean you're weak that you would go to a therapist. It actually would mean you're even being stronger than you were before you went, not just because of what you'll get from it, but that you're willing to accept that there's something you need to work on and look at. It doesn't make you stronger to not look at the problem. It only makes you weaker. So to me, the day you enter therapy will be one of your strongest moments, not a moment of weakness, even though it might feel to you like, why do I need this other person? Um, but we're all in need of help. We're living in an interdependent experience where without others, we don't survive. So I really hope you, you would consider that uh, and, and make that your next step. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks it was really nice talking to you. Yes. Fine work. <laughs> My pleasure. Nice talking to you. Have a good day. Likewise. All right, take Thanks. care. Take care. All right. Let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Hi. You're on the air. Go ahead. Hi. Hi. Well, thank you for taking my call. Sure. And um, I'm one of your listeners, and I've been listening to your talk show, your book reviews, your interviews with your guests, and I've learned a lot. And I wanted to show my appreciation and how grateful I am from all that you've been going like through your talk shows, and it's been very helpful for me. Oh, thank and you. And sometimes I listen to your talk show live, and sometimes on Saturdays, I was last Saturday that I learned about the sad news of your grandmother mm. passing. Yeah. So I'm so sad to hear it. Thank you. And uh, the you're welcome. And the first thing that came into my mind was that because I've been through that pain myself too. The first thing that I as I was listening to your sad voice and your pain and I could feel it myself. I was thinking like, okay, I'm going to call doctor and say that uh, we are here for you mm. there were so many times that I myself and I'm sure that's the same story for many of your audience that I was sad that I was down that I was listening to your talk show and your talk show helped me to put myself together and stand the still and keep my upper uh, upper little self and just just you know continue to the best that I could and I was thinking, okay, now you need to know that we are all here for you, we hear you, we feel the pain, and we are appreciative of what you've done for us throughout the whole few years that you had 
you have been you. managing your talk show. That's well, one thing. I appreciate that, and I, uh, I'll i just make a quick comment there. First of all, thank you for your kind words. Very, very much appreciate that. And um, and thank you for, you know, about my grandmother. Yes, I've, I've been sad about that. And uh, even, you know, whether or not or how much to share is always something I have to think about. But I, I thought it could be good. For me, it was also, I think, therapeutic just to talk about it. I have also I've obviously talked to others as well. But to talk about on the air, and I was hoping to just share about the my grieving process. And I might even share in later shows, too. Um, just because I think it's something that we avoid talking about and uh, we need to talk about and face because it's something we all will face. You know, death is a part of life. Um, so we have to, to face that. So thank you uh, for that. But yes, go ahead. You're very welcome. But, well, I do have a coping strategy that I I think maybe you are not supportive, but I wanted to share with you. Um because you're a psychologist, of course, you're, you wanted to face the reality. But this has been very helpful for me. When I first had to face the situation, I decided that, like I, I sat down with myself and I dig through this and I found out that what makes me so sad about it is that the fact that I've lost my loved one. So I was thinking, of, okay, if I look at it different in a different way and I look at it the way that I cannot just see and this was my father I cannot just see him but he's there and uh, if I don't see him doesn't mean that he's not there mm -hmm. it just he's there he still supports me he's still um, you know it's just like he's, he's in, in another room or and this has been very helpful yeah and since I started to think like that then I used the same strategy when I was away from home and I lost my um, uncle I lost my aunt and I, I I just I discussed it with the family members I say you know what sorry if I won't be able to call you right on time and give you show my respect and condolences but then I would rather to think of them as that they are healthy they are young and beautiful and handsome as I have them have their images in my brain and I'm going to hold on to those images and um, I rather look at it that way yeah and I, you know and I'm I, I, it's a complicated thing and of course it can also bring up personal beliefs of you know religious beliefs and other things about the afterlife and I, I'll leave that part aside but overall I do believe that our relationship with someone it is not necessarily because they're physically no longer here that goes away um, just like even let's say you have a friend and if they go somewhere for two months and they don't have phone or internet you still can relate to them in a way within yourself because that's how really we do relate although we see each other we interact the relationship it's between us but also within us as well uh, and that doesn't have to end or go away just because the the person is no longer physically there you know people even sometimes say well what what do i think this person would say to me right now and based on what you've experienced from them and through them they might still support you in, in that way you know they maybe would reassure me or they would tell me they were proud of me or they would uh, make me feel good about myself so i definitely agree with you that the part that is hard is saying goodbye to someone um, in this physical realm and that way that you connect to them and, and can relate to them but it doesn't mean the relationship 
ends in a variety of ways, including, you know, you learn sometimes more about them. You know, I've worked with people that later in life, they learned that their parent or grandparent was going through something incredibly hard, but they kept it from them when they were a kid to protect them from it. And it could change the way they feel about them, even if the person has died and the, the you know, nothing has changed. The past was still what it was. The way they feel can, can change. So a relationship is a living thing in a sense, even if the person has died, the relationship lives on. So I think in that sense, regardless of what you might believe about afterlife, and that that's again, a personal thing I'll leave aside. I think you always have that because the relationship still is alive because you still can relate to them internally. Oh, wonderful. You depicted my coping strategy just, just fine. You just put them in, in words very well. Thank you so much. I was trying to, I was, I was struggling to read words to explain what is my coping strategy, and you just just depict that very nicely. No, you expressed so, it fine. I, I maybe I shared another side of it, but you were saying it, it quite well. Mm-hmm. Oh well, thank you. But yes, that is so true, and it's been very helpful. And now I don't have the pain, and. Um, I try to even avoid words that shows that they are not there anymore. Uh, typical Persian words that they mm-hmm. say, you know, when somebody passed away, I try to avoid it because that is also sort of uh, bringing the fact that, okay, they are not existent anymore. They're not there anymore. Well, what's the point of going that way um, rather than considering them that they're there, as you mentioned, their relationship is still there. If we do believe in them, and so uh, there was no reason to repeatedly mention that they are not there anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's a, that's a personal yeah. thing. I, you know, of course, you always have to, I hope, we, we want to be aware of some people can stay in denial longer. I'm not saying you are. Mm-hmm. So we want to make sure we don't, re- we want to recognize the reality of, let's say, physically they're not there. And again, whatever you might mm-hmm. believe in different ways can can still be there. Um, and I'll say one, another thing, you know, you mentioned pain and being sad. And I'm making these in more general statements. It doesn't mean this is what you're going through. But oftentimes in life in general, but also when we go through something painful like grief, sometimes the sense is, what's the fastest way to no longer be sad? And that's not generally how I measure these types of things because grieving is a process and it could even involve, it probably needs you or requires for you to be sad for a while. Um, to truly deal with it. So again, I'm not saying this is for you, but some people might deny their pain or avoid their pain because they think, well, if I'm not sad, that's good. Or if I'm sad, it's bad, which is things we've internalized. And of course it might not feel good, but when you go through something um, painful, it, it should feel painful. We need it to. So I just make that point because like I said, I, it's not just about my own personal experience of grieving, but something that we all go through and we grieve through death, but also relationships end, which can feel like a death of the relationship. And that's its own type of grieving. And I, I always think if we measure just on how long are you sad? To me, that's not the best indicator of looking at, is it a healthy grieving process? It's more complex than that. And and to me, it's more important about facing the feelings and really going through them rather than if we avoid them, that actually can be very health unhealthy and likely means it's going to show up somewhere down the line. So I just mentioned that because you mentioned the pain, um, but I think pain is part of the process and actually a very healthy one. Yeah, I also learned this through your talk shows, talking about 
um, crying, yeah. how to let people cry. And your mm, fireside shows that we need to give ourselves some time for grieving. So that's totally, totally normal. I learned it through your talk shows. That, that is totally normal. And emotional pain needs time to for recovery mm-hmm. as much as physical pain. And, you know, if, 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 if um, a tissue um, has been damaged and needs recovery for at least three yeah. months to be maybe recovered totally, sometimes even more. So even emotions will go through the same process because they have roots back into physiology. And I've learned, again, as I said, and through your talk shows that, okay, this is okay to be sad. This is okay uh, to be, uh, you know, down. This is okay. It takes some time. And uh, we just need to take the steps Mm -hmm. and uh, face it properly because there is no shortcut for when it comes. And I learned it again, and there are so many things I learned through your talk shows. As you were talking about, um, to one of your interviews with that psychologist, that now they are living in Portland. I forgot his name. Yeah, Dr. Um, Scott Rauer. Yes, mm-hmm. I got I got into his website and I learned oh, a great. lot and I shared it with my, because I'm a clinician, I shared it with my patients as well. Um, and then um, through the other texture that you had with that, Dr. Jennifer... Galvin? Um, Galvin, mm-hmm. yes, yes. Um, sort of connecting things together that... Uh, we need some time to be able to cope with pain. And if we won't give our body, our, our emotions that time, and looking for shortcuts that people do, like um, drugs or alcohol or other things, to to sort of cover that pain, mm-hmm. that is going to even open another like make it more complicated exactly and that's what i mean that i think we have to be careful not to make the goal feeling good or no longer being sad because as you just said that the quickest way at times might be well first denying is one way but then taking it a step further taking some kind of drugs that just makes your mood up doesn't mean you're you're going through it the right way or healing so and even when we differentiate physical and emotional that's a, a line that we probably draw that's more in our, you know, the way we think about it than in reality because they both involve uh, physical and medic- uh, emotional. They're all kind of part of the same thing. So we need to, you know, everything needs to heal the way it needs to heal and it's giving it that time and space to do so. And we definitely have a mindset that crying is bad. You know, I kind of joke and people sometimes when they talk to me, it almost seems like I want everyone to cry. And it, it's not that I want people to cry, but what I know is that almost everyone is holding in pain or we're afraid to cry or express our sadness to one another. And I don't want that. And I want to encourage people to feel more comfortable to have that space, to feel comfortable to share it with one another. So it's not that I want people to cry more. It's that I don't want them to hold on and and hold in the the tears that they want to express. But I appreciate you sharing, first of all, your kind words, but also uh, some of your thoughts on things that I've discussed. And uh, it's my pleasure to get to do the show and hearing from you and others that it can be helpful. Um, It always feels nice. So thank you for sharing those kind words. I appreciate you calling in. My pleasure. It was, thank you for giving me the, the, the chance to thank you, even though it's not going to be enough. Oh, Have yourself a beautiful oh, day. Thank you. You too. Take care. Mm-hmm. Thanks. See you as well. Bye-bye. All right. Let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. 
Hello. Hello. Yes, hi. Thanks for calling. Hello. How are you? You're Good. Right? Thank you. How are you doing? Uh, I just wanted to. Obviously, I know we only have like eighteen minutes left of this. But well, I'll, just less than uh, that because I got to end at like fifty-five past. So we have about twelve minutes. I know it's not a lot, but let's see what we can get into. Okay. Right. It's just. Um, it's just about myself and uh, just a relationship I have with a girl. It's just. Um, should I just go into it? Yeah. Right now, uh, I'm a single kid. I'm the only kid out of the family, right? Mm-hmm. And my mother, she left when I was around four years oldish. So, I, you know, I don't really have much memory about that and stuff like that. When you so say left, like, what do you mean by left? Right now. As in, they divorced. My father and her divorced. And her reason for leaving, I'm so unsure of. I think she just couldn't handle having a child. It's just, mm-hmm. that's okay. what I think it was. That's how what my father told me about it. Okay. So it was just me and him, all of this, and my grandma's been obviously with me growing up, and I'm around, I'm 20 in four days now as well. So it's just, I was wondering, because right now, I am in my life somewhere where it's like, I'm happy, you know, mm-hmm. but it's just, I know for a fact that these things could have caused an issue in my life that I might sure. not know about. It's just like, you know, maybe, I don't know. Just, I want to know where I'm standing right now in life, you know, with the issues I had as a kid and growing up it's just you know yeah well I think that's good just to want to look at that yeah just the fact that you look so you said you're almost 20 so you're 19 years old yes okay yeah I mean you know um, losing your mother and, and obviously losing a parent at any age in any way can be tough but at four and also the fact that you don't know why but she left you know I know this might sound strange but if she had died which is tragic in its own way it's different than her it could feel like she chose to leave now you don't know why in the circumstances um maybe you'll want to understand that better but that can have an impact so i don't want to make an assumption that this is for sure what's happened to you and what you've taken from it but i could see it having multiple factors like how does it affect your self-esteem you know that your you know mom left could could that have that effect that's the thing you know what it is when i think about it i can't even like it never comes to my mind that yeah. I don't have a mom. It's just, it's not a thought that goes in my head ever. Yeah, and it's, it's like, possible it, it like doesn't at all. Point where I yeah. don't care, I think. Yeah. Well, it's possible. Now, you know, not caring could also be a way of coping with it, too. So it's possible. Like I said, I don't want to assume I know yeah. how it's impacted you, but concerns I would have or things that would come to mind. Because um, I'm sure it does seem like, obviously, since the age of four, you probably don't have much memory of her. So most of your life, it's like, you know, we're saying someone yeah. didn't exist. Well, you can't imagine what, what it's like for them to exist when they weren't there. So I, I can get it that it might not be yeah. something that consciously or it's going to be something that you're plagued by. Let's say if she left when you were 12, maybe you, it would be very different. So that could impact, obviously, mm-hmm. how you think about it or maybe don't think about it in the sense that it could be unconscious in a lot of ways. But I would imagine it can affect that. It can affect... Right. Of course, she was the parent of the opposite sex. And if you're heterosexual and dating females, that, of course, can influence how you feel about women. There could be at times an anger towards women because of what happened. So you might have that that you'd want to uh, to look at. Um, you could right. have also this fear of abandonment because if your mother left, who is the person who's never supposed to leave, it, it could create trust issues of, well, then how can I expect someone else to That's stay? That's the thing. You know, I think you just, you just hit it right on the nail because... I have with my girlfriend right now. Sometimes I'm having issues, like for example, if they speak to different guys or something, I might just get it's just this inner anger comes out. Mm-hmm. But I always blame it on, oh, I'm just being protective. Yeah. But it's just deep down, it's just me being like, well, I don't want that guy to talk to my girlfriend. You know, it's just, yeah. 
Um, so there could be something there. And, you know, it's, it's complicated because now it could just be this is, uh, you know, yeah, you're being overly jealous and maybe it probably is mostly that. But you might also get attracted to girls that create that in you, too. I mean, we're, it's amazing how unconsciously we can create certain types of dramas that you wouldn't yeah. want. So I don't think you want this consciously, but it could be some recreation. So yeah. I really want to commend you at the age of 19 for thinking of these things. Some people never want to face their life or question what's happened to them and how it might impact them. I think that's really good. Um, yeah, yeah. And I appreciate that you called me and we're talking yeah, about you. it. Likely it'll take more of an exploration, even if we had 30 minutes or 40 minutes, um, that wouldn't be enough. And we only have like yeah. several more. So I would hope you, as I mentioned, a previous caller, I always think it's good for everyone to have one experience at least of going deep into therapy for months, if not even year. Or it yeah, could yeah. even be years, depending on how you're approaching it um, to, to kind of unravel and uncover what's there because it's almost impossible that what you went through has not impacted you i mean essentially we can say everyone's childhood has affected them you know no one gets out of it unscathed and if you have some of these more serious relationship disruptions it's very likely it's going to impact how you first relate with yourself because that's our primary relationship but then how you're going to relate to others and especially with women because um you know it was your mother that was gone do you have any relationship with her now your mom? No, no. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, actually, sorry, the, I was contacted through Instagram by uh, another woman who she supposedly was a friend multiple times, and they're saying, yeah, how your mother wants to speak to you. And my father, who was like, well, I'm going to leave it up to you. He mm. told me, he was like, well, at this age, it's it might not be a good idea, because obviously she might want to ask things from you, or, you know, it's just not the right time. You don't even know her. But he said, it's up to you if you want to contact yeah. her, you can I was thinking, I was like, I'm not sure if I'm, if your sound is coming through okay. I don't want to say as much as I'm now 18, you know? Okay, sorry, I don't know if it was just my headphones, but I couldn't hear you for a, a few seconds. Um, But it's okay. So, but you were saying you're not sure if you want to talk to her or not, which I, it's a very personal decision to make and I don't think there's a black and white you definitely should or you shouldn't but what I would want you to do is to kind of evaluate what would make you want to you know talk to her Uh, I'm sure there's curiosity uh there I know that's likely but what would make you want to talk to her or or did you make a decision yet I see that's the thing I was told her I was like well I don't know because I mean when I messaged her when the the person I messaged her back when I told her I was like well why is she? Why is she coming to me and talking to me? Why yeah. are you coming to me? Like, why? Why is her friend contacting me? Why isn't she making an account and just messaging me herself? Mm-hmm. You know, like what's going on here? I don't even know what's going on. I, mean, I don't even know her. She's a stranger. She left at four. Yeah. So it's like, what's the point now? Well, yeah, that's. I mean, you I know? can get that now. Not. To, I mean, I don't know. It could have even been her, but saying it's a friend or she was with the friend or who knows what was happening there. I, I wouldn't make that be too impactful in making the decision or not but um yeah i could see how it's a tough thing where again there's a a curiosity but it's also like you've lived life without her and you don't know you know is she good like you said could you want something but even still it's definitely going to stir a lot up in you if you were to talk to her you know so it's a little bit risky in that sense um oftentimes people have you know it reminds me of people who've been adopted and they you know their biological parents become this 
question mark, but also this curiosity, but also this yeah. source of anger. It, it's a lot of things. So it seems like you have some of that understandably with her. Um, and so, you know, yeah. you don't have to rush it. Making that kind of a decision is uh, is big. And I'm glad your father uh, is leaving it to you because it is very personal of what you want and what you feel is, is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, but I would want you to be mindful yeah. of if you ever did to just be aware of your expectations and your intentions going into it because it could end up being none of those things which could be harsh you know let's say you know because very likely yeah. you have somewhere inside of you this desire to resolve things with her or to get her love i mean even in an unconscious kind of way you know people even after their parents have been abusive for like 30 years still somewhere have that desire so you could have that uh, it's being aware that if you ever do talk to her, reach out to her, you might not get any of those things, um, yeah. which is unfortunate, but it, it might be the reality. But yeah, that's a, that is a lot um, to deal with. And I'm glad, like I said, you're looking at it. I would consider going to therapy where you can explore it more deeply because it's likely affecting things yeah. that you might even might not even realize it's affecting. Yeah, yeah of course. And... Um just one more thing. Obviously, sure. I know the lack of time, so I could possibly call next week again and to go further into this. I have a girlfriend right now. I'm Iranian. I'm mm -hmm. born and bred in Iran, and I moved here when I was 12. My girlfriend right now, she's Indian. She was, she was born in the UK. I mean, I'm currently living in the UK now, mm -hmm. and um, just we've been dating for almost a year now. But the thing is, I know your father because well, I I listened to a lot of his videos on YouTube and mm -hmm. stuff. And my father obviously showed it to me and stuff like that. And he said to me, I mean, it said that having a relationship with an uh, Indian while you're an Iranian or just interracial relationship with that might not be good because in the future it's like the, the things the problems it could cause it's hefty you know like the children are you going to bring them up as a I don't know Iranian or with Indian cultures it's like that kind of thing right now this girl is very serious about me and she's seeing a future uh -huh. and I'm here right now I'm just like how should I treat this because I like the girl and all, okay? It's just the things that I'm also thinking about our future. It's like, well, I don't want to have to bring a kid in this world if they're going to have issues. Well, you get what I mean? So yeah. Like, should I... Just, you know, I don't mean to cut you off just looking at the time. And yeah, I would be very happy yeah. to explore this deeper because yeah. it probably would require a kind of deeper exploration. Now, culture, I think, yeah. in general, when we're finding a partner, my first concern, I mean, your age, I would think, is on the younger side for looking at marriage yet now maybe you're talking about yeah. creating a future and making that happen later so that's my first thought and especially with what you've shared about your background i'd want you to look at that a little bit more closely before you would make a decision yeah. like getting married um but quickly about culture yeah. overall the we, we want to be similar to our partner because the more similar you are, the better for just getting along, understanding each other, how you create your relationship and all of that. Yeah. And culture is a big part of that. But culture isn't just a title like Iran. You know, I guess you would be Iranian, English, Iranian. I don't know how actually they say it, but, you know, you would be Iranian living in England and should be Indian, but living in, in England, um, in the UK. Yeah. You know, that label means something, but more it's about who you are, because if you are very, uh, you know, westernized, so to speak, like very much more of the English culture, you would be further away from someone who lives in Iran than someone who lives in the UK, even though by title you'd both be Iranian, you yeah. know? So it, it, culture is a little bit more complex than just this label. Um, so I would want you to look at with her 
how similar are you in things like values, uh, even like gender roles and values as far as husband and wife and men and women, yeah. different ways that you view the world is, is what we're looking at when we say culture, because I know Iranians that are so different from me in how they view the world. And I know non-Iranians who are very similar to me in how they view the world and see things, you know, so the label tells us something, but it, it's much more complex than that. But I'd be happy to, to, you know, dig a little deeper. I do have to wrap up for today, uh, but I appreciate Appreciate you, you calling. Yeah, it was that nice. Was if you don't mind, I'll call next week and. Uh, Hopefully, yeah. you can. Yeah, if, I would be very happy to talk to you then. It was nice talking to you. Enjoy your day. It was you too. Thank you very much. Have sure. a great day. Thank you. Goodbye. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. A big thank you to all the callers and listeners, and also Khazala here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulak. We have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.